I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, January 18th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, state health officials expect more doses of vaccine in the coming weeks, but distribution will still be limited. Then, it was the first rocket test of its kind in decades, but it was shut down after just over a minute. We look at what last weekend's test at the Stennis Space Center means for Project Artemis. Plus, a local civil rights veteran recalls her experience with Martin Luther King Jr. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi's officials are making mass vaccinations a goal as the state begins to feel the strain and loss following high transmission during the holiday season. The state is averaging over 40 deaths per day since the new year began, and hospitals continue to operate at capacity. State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs says his office is hopeful a steady decline is on the way. You know, we've been through a rough holiday season. We've seen a pretty significant um, increase in cases and deaths. We're going to continue to see a lot of deaths, but I'm not sure that we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Now, it's a long tunnel, and the light is dim, but we're seeing some early indicators that give us some hope that we're not going to continue to rise. Now, it's still pretty bad, right? So there's still going to be a lot of risk out there, especially if we consider new variants that might be more infectious infectious that are going to roll into the state. But... We've seen a pretty a, a, a lot of cases, but not 3,000 a day, right? We're seeing about 1,600 to 2,000 a day kind of range. Um, we've seen a moderation in hospitalizations, right? So before we get too excited, let's not you know go doing cartwheels down the street. But I will say that we're hopeful that we'll be able to lift the restriction on elective surgeries. Um, the other thing is, you know, we have this system of care plan for hospitals to make you know if you live in a rural location and you're sick you can get into a, you know a higher level of care and if that looks good you know we haven't renewed that order yet and if we think that the system can get back to normal operations we will not renew it but anyway we're just going to kind of wait and see 
Governor Tate Reeves says the state is trending in the right direction, but the numbers are still significantly higher than surge last summer that stressed hospitals. He agrees the vaccine provides some optimism and believes the state is improving in that regard as well. We try to never let the highs be too high and never let the lows be too low. And so while we are seeing a stabilization in the total number of cases and really a a downtick in, in large measure across a lot of different metrics, we're still at very, very high levels on a relative basis. When I, when I think about the total number of cases on a daily basis, when compared to what we thought was near Armageddon in late April and early May, uh, I just want to make sure that you know we all recognize that. But, but anytime you start seeing that rollover, it certainly gives you great reason uh, for optimism. The, the other reason, great reason for optimism, uh, in my view, is Uh, not only the two vaccines that we currently have on the market the distributing but also positive developments in additional potential additional vaccines because one of the things that we've seen over the last five weeks we're currently in in day five of week five of having vaccines available is we are ramping up very very rapidly as a state we still got a long way to go and and we know that but today is a milestone Um, We will be able to confirm exactly what the final number is at the end of the day, but I can tell you with complete confidence that we vaccinated or we inoculated as a state our 100,000th Mississippian. While eligible residents are filling vaccine appointments, those living in long-term care facilities are still struggling to get access to the vaccine. A contract between the federal government and two corporate pharmacies is resulting in a slow rollout in those facilities. But Governor Reeves believes they are working toward a solution to the problem. What I would say to you is that that's a, that's a great task that we should all be pleased with. We should all recognize that it's going to take all of us to continue to ramp up because we really basically have four different distribution mechanisms in place right now. We have one that we have uh, not a lot of control over, which is the federal pharmacy program. And the federal pharmacy program is a contract entered into by HHS with uh, the two pharmaceutical um, or the two uh, companies, CVS and Walgreens. Uh, I will tell you that I have spent a great deal of time this week um, working with them and I am confident that we now have a plan in place that by the end of this month, we will have 95% of first doses in arms of those who will take it by the end of this month. There was a panic last week when appointments for the vaccine through the Department of Health filled up in 48 hours. Dr. Dobbs says the state has enough doses to honor those appointments, plus the second doses for everyone who has had or is scheduled for the first. So we had anticipated a, 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 an infusion of additional vaccine in February to ramp up more, right? So that was what we intended to communicate, that piece, but also that all vaccine that we had currently in route, the, the appointments were full, right? So we didn't want people on the phone getting mad trying to get an appointment when there's no appointment to be had. So where we are now is we do have a steady allocation of vaccine coming in. We get it on Thursday, we send it out, and it goes to the clinics and wherever else. We don't have 100% visibility on that more than a few days ahead of time. And we don't really know until we can order it. So that, that's that kind of foundation. Now we were hoping to get a bolus infusion in February, but I think that that, might have, that may not happen actually. Um, uh, the Washington Post and some other uh, organizations have published that there actually is not 
any residual in the stockpile. It's only coming out as it's manufactured. So that will impact, I mean, it doesn't impact our operations, but it impacts our aspirational plans, I guess if that's the way to say it. But the flip side of that is, is there may be some additional vaccine coming online from Johnson & Johnson or AstraZeneca that would augment our supplies. So this is just, but please know, we don't have, some of the things that the docs are frustrated in, and I get that, we don't have a lot of clear visibility on how it's going to change. We have a sense, we have basically a sort of, you know, like a wink and a nod, say we think you'll get a stable supply of doses, but we don't have any guarantee. We think we're going to be pretty good on a regular basis rolling it out, but we'll try to get into a steady rhythm, especially as we incorporate the rapid throughput with the drive-throughs, and then any balance we might do with partners as we kind of have available vaccine. So I think that's, I just wanted to sort of get that out there and then say sorry to Mississippi for scaring y'all. There are second doses out there, so don't worry about that. State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs. Coming up, we look at what the weekend's test at the Stennis Space Center means for Project Artemis. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. For the first time in decades, four rockets designed with enough power to launch a shuttle into space were tested at Hancock County's Stennis Space Center. For a little over a minute, the four engines generated 1.6 million pounds of thrust. It was the most powerful test at Stennis since the Saturn V stages uh, Saturn were tested here in the 1960s. But then... And we got to shut down. One of the engines shut down just over one minute into a test plan for an eight-minute hot fire, the amount of time needed to launch a rocket into space. NASA says it will still get a lot of data from the test, but it's still assessing what caused the early shutdown. It also says it's not clear yet if it will have enough data to move to the next step or if it will need to do the test again. This was to be the final test of the core stage of the space launch system before it shipped by barge to Canada. Space Center for the Artemis One mission. Gary Benton is Director of Safety and Mission Assurance at Stennis Space Center. He talked to us prior to the test about the role the Space Center and the test plays in Artemis mission. The Artemis mission is uh, NASA's mission to return to the moon. And um, one of the goals is to get the next uh, man and the first woman on the moon in 2024. So uh, the first flight is going to be an unmanned capsule. The second flight will be a manned capsule that uh, orbits the moon. And the third flight, they'll actually land on the moon. How long has this mission been in the works for NASA? Are we talking years and years? Yeah, several years. Um, uh, they, they, we know we named it Artemis when we got our new administrator a few years back. We've been working on the rocket for several years, and the rocket has, uh, you know, it's capable of doing all kinds of different missions, and it is going to be used on the Artemis mission, the uh, Space Launch System rocket. Now, tell us how Stennis became involved in this mission, and how long ago? 
Yeah, so Stennis has a you know rich history of testing big rockets for NASA because we have a buffer zone and we have some facilities here that are capable of handling these big rockets. So uh, we started uh, working on the SLS rocket, um, the test stand, uh, several years ago. We were in construction for three or four years, and then we were able to uh, to get the test stand activated, and um, the the SLS core stage arrived last year. And we installed it into the B2 test stand at Stennis, and we've been working to get everything ready to go for this uh, this uh, test that we're going to do for the for the uh, Artemis missions. Are there other space stations around the country that do this sort of thing? There are other places that do rocket testing, but none of them have the capability to to do as many or as a diverse uh, rockets like we do here at Stennis. When was the last time Stennis did a rocket test? Well, we we do them all the time, actually, for several different engines and components and other companies, uh, not just NASA. But the last time we did one this large of scale was back during the Apollo mission and uh, in the late 60s and early 70s. So it's been a long time since we fired off a rocket this big at the Space Center. Oh, my gosh. The 1960s. That is a long time. <laughs> and a lot of innovations in between, I'm sure. Uh, this uh, test is called the Green Run Hot fire test what does that mean yeah so the green run test is really the pull-up test where we we verify everything's working before we launch so it's the last test uh and um the hot fire means that it's a it's a live hot fire so that the the hot fire refers to the engines that are uh starting and the fire and flame that comes out of the bottom of the engines so this is uh the eighth uh eighth of a series of eight tests that we're we've been running and the hot fire is number eight what makes a successful test? Well, after the test, we would uh, all the engineers would look at the data and verify that everything worked as performed. So um, we had different objectives, uh, thrust levels and valve timing and software working. So it's really a, a review of the data to make sure all the objectives are met, and then we would declare it a success. How many people from Stennis are involved in this project? Uh, well, hundreds, uh, probably over a thousand. If you count all the support personnel, it takes a, a huge team at Stennis, um, to, to get this off. Uh, so there's, uh, many NASA engineers and contractors and other personnel that help support the site and run the site and make this, uh, something that we're able to accomplish. You said that you've been working on this test for years. What went into those steps leading up to now? Yeah, for for, for Stennis' Space Center's role, we really had to get the B-2 facility back and, and able to test something. So it hadn't really done a big rocket stage test in, in many, many, many years. And it's a very, very large test stand. Um, and so there was a lot of systems that were old that, that needed to be replaced and things that needed to be repaired, like the crane that picks up the rocket. And a lot of the structural steel had to be replaced and some of the new piping put in. So there were several years of large construction projects to get the test stand ready to be able to handle something powerful like this uh, this uh, space launch system core stage. And um, then, of course, we've got to go check out all those systems and activate them. So um, we spent time doing that. And then we were installed the rocket, like I said, just a little over a year ago. We've got the rocket installed in the test stand, and we've been running checkout tests on the rocket to verify all the systems work. Um, for the last year. So that's, that's kind of the some of the things that we've been doing over the last few several years to build up to the test. All right. Well, this is uh, very, very exciting, certainly, after with the 
from 1960 to now, that's, that's a long, long time. Uh, Gary Benton is the Director of Safety and Mission Assurance at Stennis Space Center. Gary, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Coming up, a local civil rights veteran recalls her experience with Martin Luther King Jr. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Flonzie Brown-Wright was a champion of voting rights in Mississippi during the 1960s and 70s, the first African-American female to be elected to Madison County Election Commissioners pre- and post-Reconstruction. Mrs. Brown-Wright helped register thousands of Mississippians during the Civil Rights Movement. She also worked directly with Dr. Martin Luther King during the Meredith Marches. In observation of this Martin Luther King Jr. Day, she shares her experience fighting for change with the civil rights icon. I've been to jail. Uh, I've been shot at. I, I was uh, in the tear gas and in Canton. Uh, my telephone would ring every morning at 2 o'clock uh, to tell me that they were going to threaten my life, they were going to kill my children. Let me just stop for a second. Because it's one thing to have your life threatened, which is horrible enough. But when your children's lives were threatened, did that cause a different reaction in you? I know mothers are pretty protective of their children. It caused a much different reaction because what I did, uh, I went to the sheriff's office. Now, I was in, in my early 20s, so now that I think about it, I had to be either crazy or, like you said, being a protective mother. When they called to tell me that they were going to kill my children, I went to um, I went to the sheriff's office, and I, I had a, a pistol that my brother had given me. He was a Vietnam veteran. And I took my pistol, and I laid the pistol on the counter. And I told the sheriff, I said, now, y'all threaten my life all the time. I get death threats all the time. I said, but now, if you know who is threatening the lives of my children, you better call your boys off. Because if they come to 344 Boyd Street, I'm going to leave them in the window. And I meant that. I would have killed for my children. And it was not uncommon again for me to come to work in the morning and the trucks would be sitting in front of the NACP office with their guns again. It was not uncommon for me to open the NACP office door and find a calling card from the Klan that said the eyes of the Klan are up on you. It's in my book. And so, um, but it's, it's nothing about fear. And and, I, and it's, it's so reflective of what uh, the senators and Congress are going through today. And many of them are afraid to even leave their home and, and talking about wearing body armor. It's something about fear. You can... Once you understand what your mission is, I didn't choose civil rights as a as a lifelong journey. I was not going to get my head beat and get my kids killed. I was I wasn't going to be in that stuff. But you know, you don't always get to choose your your journey. And once I understood that the journey had been chosen for me, and I finally accepted it, I was willing to accept whatever came with it, except the killing of my children. When did you first become aware of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.? 
oh, well, <laughs> many years years before I met him, um, years before I met him, it, while I was living in California, I would hear him speak about different things. And uh, but when I came back to Mississippi, and then of course have the opportunity to to talk with him on on a telephone when he called me during the Meredith March, uh, when he called me that they were on their way to Canton, and he said someone had told him that he, he wanted to get something done in my hometown, he needed to call me. So the day that my phone rang, rang and Dr. King was on the other end of the phone, and of course we exchanged pleasantries, but I knew the voice and immediately. And I said, well, how can I help you? He said, I've been told if I want to get something done, I need to call you. He said, can you provide housing? and food for 3,000 people. <laughs> and with, and with, That's a tall order. <laughs> that was a tall order. Without giving it a thought, I told him, yes, I can, because our community was so together. We were so thirsty and hungry for getting the right to vote and, be, and being together, being cohesive, and doing what we could do, offering ourselves, our bodies, our minds, um, for the sake of others to be able to get the right to vote. So I told him, yes, I can. And I started calling everybody who could cook a pot of greens, some some cornbread and, and some stewed chicken uh, to start cooking extra pots of food so that when those marches came to Canton uh, in June of 1966, we would have enough food for them to, to eat. And, of course, you know about the, uh, the tent that uh, we, we tried to raise on the school grounds of McNeil Elementary School. That, that's when we were all tear gassed. When Stokely and other men began to unroll the, the tent uh, to um, to sleep the men, we had gotten a permit to have a march to the courthouse, but we had not gotten a permit to hoist the tent that would allow people to sleep. But then when, when Stokely Carmichael said, uh, we're going to pitch the tent, and we began chanting that, He's because look at all that black power that's out there. And, of course, the media misconstrued the term first used in the Delta by Willie Ricks and later used in Canton by Stokely Carmichael, misconstrued it to be something negative. But what he was saying, yet you got black power because you've got the right to vote. You can you can use your vote to elect anybody that you want to elect, and that's what the term "black power" was supposed to have meant uh, in its in its, um, its its infancy usage. But of course, it was um, it, it was equated with um, black nationalism, uh, black exclusivity. That was not the case at all. When did you first meet Martin Luther King Jr.? I first met Dr. King when he came through Canton uh, in June of nineteen sixty-six. Did you uh, did you meet with him other times after that, or just that one time? Well, they were in Canton for several days because Canton had a majority popul- a black population to be registered because that was what Mr. Meredith began with, was the walk against fear to help register people across the state. So they were in Canton for two to three days, and of course, I worked very very closely with him. I took him up. Uh, took him in my car, and I took him around Canton to show him our Head Start centers, churches that were active, and other uh, places of interest, uh, homes of interest where meetings had taken place. I took him to my mother's house for dinner, uh, and I saved the dishes that he ate out of and donated them to the Mississippi Museum year before last in honor of my mother. Um, but, but in terms of meeting with him, uh, I sat at his feet in the home of the, the 
Mr. and Mrs. George Washington, when he told us about his death. And I shall never forget that moving experience where 12 of us local people were assembled to talk about strategy for the march and all of that. And then he said to us, he said, you know, I'm not going to be with you very long. My days are numbered. I'm getting chills even telling you about this now. And every time I tell it, I just get chills because it was, though, it was as though it was yesterday. He said, I'm not going to be with you very long. My days are numbered. I'm going to die a violent death. And to hear him say that, and then he said to us that were assembled, he said, so what I want each of you to do is when you see racism, when you see segregation, when you see a people being treated uh, inhumanely. I want each of you to make me a vow today that you will stand up and call it out. And so I'm not on this journey, Karen, because I think I'm so popular and famous. I'm on this journey continuously because I made a vow that day to Dr. King that anytime I had an opportunity to tell the story, when I had an opportunity to call out racism and to do something about racism, I would do it. And yes, my life has been in danger on many occasions. You know, I was shot at, uh, coming out of my buyer, ran off the road in my car. And had I not been able to drive a stick shift, Mrs. Clarice Cohn and I would have been killed. Because, because after they bumped my car, and then I was able to get back up on the road, then they, they, uh, the truck of Klansmen came in the same, in, 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 the, in the lane opposite from me and shot my windows out. And had I not been able to be a pretty good driver, my dad taught me at nine years old how to drive, then, then I'm sure we would have been just killed and left in a ditch. Well, you've carried on the legacy of Dr. King, and I thank you so much for being with us, Flonzy Brown-Wright. Thanks, Karen. You take care of yourself. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.